You're listening to Radical Philosophy on 3CR, A55 on your AM dial. Radical Philosophy is now on Twitter. You can find it by searching Rad Philosophy on Twitter and clicking follow to follow up and keep updated with the show. You're listening to Radical Philosophy on Radio 3CR, 855 on your AM dial. And I'm Sandrine Berges from Bill Kent University, Ankara. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Hawthorne, Tatman, Jenkins, Hutchinson, Hirsi Ali and Plumwood. Let's get radical about philosophy. It takes a long time to be really married. One marries many times at many levels within a marriage. If you have more marriages than you have divorces within the marriage, you're lucky and you stick it out. Well, thank you, Mary. I've got somebody in reading a quote for me today. Welcome to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews, on 3CR Community Radio, 8.55 on your AM dial. And I'm speaking to... Dr. Jackie Broad, who is an Australian Research Council Future Fellow in the Monash Philosophy Department at Monash University. Welcome to the program. Hello. Could you tell us who is Mary Astell? Mary Astell is uh, now widely regarded to be one of the earliest English feminists. And this reputation rests on two publications from about 300 years ago. The first one, A Serious Proposal to the Ladies, and the second one, Reflections Upon Marriage. Now, in the first book, she proposed Women's Academy in England, a kind of an all-female institute of learning, which was quite a radical idea at the time when women were not even permitted to enter the universities. And her, her second book offered a critique of marriage, and these these books brought her a very great fame in her day. She was quite celebrated, which is which might be a bit surprising to hear because most people have never heard of Mary Astor. So she was well known at the time for these books. She subsequently has been remembered as a, a feminist, and I, I like to see her not only as a feminist but also as a feminist philosopher. So what was it that inspired you to study Mary Astell? Well, by chance, about 20 years ago, I was sort of educating myself in all the major feminist texts, and I was reading Germaine Greer's Female Eunuch, and I came across a quotation from Mary Astor, and I can't quite remember the exact quote, or something like, to criticise a woman for being no wiser than a man is like criticising uh, a man for losing a fight when he has both hands tied behind his back. And, and that quote was sort of referring to the fact that women uh, were so poorly educated in Astor's time that they, they, they didn't really have the reasoning skills to take a man on in an argument. And I, I, I was quite interested to, to read this quote, and, to, to, and I'd never heard of Mary Astor, so I was prompted to look her up. And when I looked her up, I think it was in a, a feminist companion, uh, she was described as a woman philosopher. And that, that was very, 
Oh, oh well, it was it was a bit of a surprise to me. I'd never actually seen those two words together before. Um, certainly not in, in reference to a woman from before the 20th century. I had done a history of philosophy degree where we had looked at 2,000 years of human thought, and unfortunately, in that history, I never once heard mention of a woman philosopher. Uh, I think things have changed now, but uh, 20 years ago, philosophy was quite backward in this respect, whereas when I had studied English literature, there were a number of female canonical figures, such as Jane Austen and Emily Bronte and so on. We never heard mention of a a woman philosopher in, in, in a history of philosophy course. And a a number of uh, fellow female students and I would turn to each other and say, well, where are all the women? And that uh, kind of inspired me to to seek them out (laughs) and to see. I I first started with Mary Astle and and I've also looked at a number of different women in the 17th century as well. Right, Um, so what was uh, Mary Astle's view on women's education at the time? Well... As I said before, I, I like to think of her as a philosopher. So she, uh, in particular, I think she was a moral philosopher. So when she talks about women's uh, education, she very much talks about their moral education. And, and by that she means she's concerned to advance their development towards uh, leading a good life and being happy people. And so when she, when she proposed her educational program, she proposed, first of all, that women would be taken outside of society, taken out of their families and taken to a kind of residential college where they would mingle with other like-minded women of a similar social status and a similar age. And when they were in this institution, which, as I said, is, was sort of like a, a, a envisages a kind of university college where women would study religion and philosophy in this sophisticated kind of way, she imagined that in this uh, institute women would not necessarily study learn- the learned languages, which was pretty common in universities at the time, and they wouldn't read a lot of books, but what they would do was that they would learn to think carefully, and they would learn to train their minds such that they could think clearly and, and sit- search out truth and certainty um, by following certain rules for thinking and so this was quite this was quite a different kind of proposal for women's education because at the time women really only had two occupations open to them that were the occupations of wife and mother and they were taught all the feminine accomplishments that they would need in those domestic roles so they were taught sewing and cooking and singing and dancing and so on Uh, But they only ever received a very rudimentary education in reading and writing. And they certainly had no training in logic or mathematics. But I still was very much about bringing about a kind of a certain disposition of mind in women, good habits of mind that would enable them not only to think clearly and to argue well and so on, but also to attain long-lasting happiness despite their external circumstances in life. So she, wasn't, she didn't want women just to attain this kind of flashy, fleeting kind of conscious state of happiness that we think of today as a kind of state of pleasure. She wanted women, above all, to attain a kind of tranquility of mind, a kind of long-lasting state of happiness and well-being. So how does Mary as to regard marriage as a form of slavery? 
After she published her educational work, the serious proposal to the ladies, she published another work which was also extremely popular and is and is often republished today. That was uh, Reflections Upon Marriage, which was a very sharp critique of marriage in her time, and but also, I should add, very funny, very witty uh, kind of satire on, on uh, marriage in the 17th century. So at this distance in time, it's hard to appreciate what marriage was like in the 17th century, but it, it certainly was something approximating state of slavery, as, as Astor says. It, it first of all, it involved a certain loss of legal status for women. And when they got married, they became what is known as a femme covert, which meant literally a woman under the cover of her husband. When a wife married, her husband essentially became her legal guardian and protector. In the eyes of the law, they were apparently one person, but in practice, the, the one person was in fact the husband. He was the only one that had any sort of real legal status. And so that meant that all her, her real property, all her real estate, all her land and all her, her housing went to her husband and, and became under his control. All her personal property became his too. If, if she were to have any money for personal expenses, she, she had to apply to him for a kind of allowance. And he, he, he of course, was obliged to provide for her. He had to provide his wife with food and shelter. But on the other hand, he was also entitled to discipline her, so he could beat her if necessary. And he was entitled to have sex with her whenever he liked, with or without her consent. So men at the time had a tremendous power within marriage. And also certain cultural expectations meant that it was thought that a wife must never dispute with her husband, must never uh, contradict him. And he could treat his wife absolutely appallingly. And she, of course, had no redress to the law. Now, why did Astor think of this as a state of slavery? Well, at the time that she was writing, which is the 17th century, there were tremendous political upheavals in England. And a number of writers, uh, now today seen as the Whig theorists, they came out against what they saw as political slavery and the kind of tyranny that the Stuart monarchs in particular were wielding over the subjects of England. And when they characterized the kind of slavery that they thought that the, that the magistrates, that the monarchs were wielding over the people, they characterized it as a state in which someone else had the power to take away the property of subjects. And, and by property, they meant their life, their liberty and their estates at that person's arbitrary will and pleasure with impunity, so without being accountable to the law. As I said, a number of theorists came out and you know, uh, cried against the regime for enslaving the subjects in this way. But Astor's one of the first to come out and say, well, that you, you're complaining against all this enslavement of the, of the masses in, you know, in, a political, in the political sphere. What about the domestic sphere, where this kind of power is being wielded over women every day in, in the family environment, in the domestic sphere? So, so she very, uh, in, in her reflections, she asks quite a famous question. If all men are born free, how is it that all women are born slaves, as they must be if they are subject to the inconstant, unknown, arbitrary will of another man? So some, some commentators think she didn't really mean to criticise marriage as a form of slavery, and some people think that she was being ironic and, and being a bit witty. But I think if you look at her moral commitments, 
and her commitments to helping women to think for themselves, to exercise their own independent judgments about moral matters. I think if you look at her, her comments about marriage and slavery in light of that, I think she, she was being utterly serious. And you only have to think about the kind of state of mind that being in such a marriage would bring about in women. They would be extremely vulnerable to the, the, the whims of their husbands, you know. And so you can see that they might, might be in their interests play it safe with their husbands, to act servilely, to always give in to his wishes and to always uh, judge as he would judge and to do as he wills. And for Astor, this, is, this, is quite, this would compromise a woman's freedom, her moral freedom, and it could also compromise her salvation. I, I haven't really emphasized what a religious thinker she was, but she really did think it was important for women to retain their independence from from, t- from those kind of domestic, tyrannical relationships that could, could result in early modern marriage. You're listening to Radical Philosophy on 3CR Community Radio, 8.55 on your AM dial. And I'm speaking to Dr Jackie Broad from the Monash Philosophy Department at Monash University about a feminist philosopher, Mary Astell. In your opinion, do you think that this view could be relevant to present-day marriages and relationships in general? Well, yes, I I do. I mean, obviously, uh, a lot has changed in the past 300 years, and those laws that I mentioned pertaining to women's status within marriage have dramatically changed too. But even today, I mean, some modern-day feminist theorists still point to the dangers of heterosexual love relationships today. Um, thinking in particular here of uh, US theorists Sandra Bartke and Marilyn Friedman, and they, like Astor, they, they point to the fact that when women are in heterosexual love relationships, given their socialization, given their upbringing and certain cultural stereotypes that pinge on women, it, it tends to be the case that in most relationships, women offer greater nurturance to their partners than they receive in return. And what this means is that often women will sacrifice their own interests in favour of promoting the interests of their partners. They will think more in terms of his career prospects and and his interests and and preferences and so on. And this, of course, takes uh, on an extreme pitch in abusive relationships where women are always double-guessing what their partner wants, what their partner's goals and interests are, so that they can avoid bringing abuse down on their heads. And I think Astor says very similar things to this. She, she does point to the fact that there, there can be this nurturing of egos that goes on in marriage relationships, such that women give up their own goals and their own interests and start to think in terms of the world according to him, according to the husband, according to his interests. But more than this, when she characterizes marriage as a form of slavery, she points to something that can often go on in, in relationships with dependence all the time. And, and this is the, this, this playing it safe that I talked about, that when you are in a relationship where you're financially dependent on someone, for example, you are in, in a vulnerable position. You do want to, don't want to compromise the, the kind of safety and security you feel being under the pr- protection of someone who is, who is propping you up financially. And so you, you are more likely to, to give in to their wishes and desires and so on. And this, um, this can be compromising. It can be compromising to your 
your autonomy, as, as we would say today, your, your capacity to, to determine your life according to your own goals and your own, your own interests and desires and so on. So, yes, I think some of the things she says are, are still, are still uh, relevant today to, to, to marital relationships. I should add, though, that, that she does, there is a relationship that she thinks can actually help women flourish and to have well-being, and that is friendly relationships, relationships of friendship. Because if you think about friendship, and she, she thinks in terms of like true, true friendships, moral friendships, not just friendships where you, you take pleasure in each other's company or you, you find it being useful being uh, you know, friends with someone for certain reasons. But if you think of really true friendships, maybe you only have one or two in your life, true friends really do want to promote the interests of others. They really, they do, really do wish well towards their friends and want to see them be happy. And so I think when she does think of marriage in a positive way, it's as a friendly relationship, not, not a relationship of domination and subjugation. How is it possible to identify several core moral concepts in her texts? Well, I mean, uh, until recently, people have been interpreting Astle as a, a political theorist. Uh, Patricia Springborg has looked at her in that way, and they've, they've looked at her as a rhetorician, someone who's very eloquent and witty in her prose. They've also looked at her, oh, well, above all, as a feminist. So many feminist theorists have, have looked at her works. But in my own work, I've, I've, I've looked at her or interpreted her writings in terms of her moral philosophy. And I think in particular, if you see her as a virtue theorist, someone who is concerned with promoting excellence of character or the virtues in women, then you can start to see a lot of a lot of really interesting ideas and concepts in her writings that come to the fore that, that are often overlooked or neglected if you just see her as a political feminist or a religious feminist and so on. Um, or for me, some of those core moral concepts are, well, above all, the concept of love. And I was sort of touching on that when I, I mentioned friendship before um, and friendly relations being ideal relations for helping women attain happiness. I still think that there, there, there's a kind of good and bad love, <laughs> to put it simply. If we get our love right, then everything else will follow. We will become good people and we will be happy. Um, the kind of love that she um, thinks particularly poorly of is, is a kind of love of desire. It's, it's, a, it's a desire to, to want to possess someone else. To, to unite with them and to have them for yourself in a kind of very selfish, possessive kind of way. For Astor, uh, this does not lead. Uh, this this does not lead to uh, the good life. And instead, she promotes what she calls a love of benevolence, which is a disinterested kind of love that we could have towards other people, uh, a wanting well for them, wishing well towards other people and trying to promote their interests and, and, and to, to help them achieve the good. And so in some ways this is what her, her educational program is all about, instilling a love of benevolence in people. And it also has, this reverence for love also has plays a very strong part in her feminist philosophy. In particular, she thinks that men, she's very down on men, <laughs> she, she, thinks that, she thinks that they are that they've treated 
women very badly. They've dominated them, they've oppressed them, they've degraded them. And the, that's because men do not treat women with this love of benevolence. They do not wish well towards them. Instead, they desire to possess them, uh, to possess them for their beauty, to, to possess them for their property, for what they can take from them. And so she thinks that if, if, if we really do follow through with this love of benevolence, we'll see that if we're, if we're really to love women and treat them well, then we must educate them to be the best they can possibly be in society. We should educate them to be useful members of society and to value themselves, not just in terms of their bodies, but also in terms of their minds. And so, so love is a, is a big concept that looms large in Astor's moral philosophy. And, and friendship too, as I said, because friends do promote your, your real interests. They, they're committed to, 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 to helping you become the best that you can be. What is the main purpose of your forthcoming publication about Mary Astell? Ah, well, so yes, I've just completed a book uh, called The Philosophy of Mary Astell that will be coming out with Oxford University Press probably early next year. And at the most basic level, I really just wanted to uh, write a book that would write a woman back into the history uh, of philosophy. I'm not the first person to, to undertake this project. I mean, in the past 20 years, there's been what's been known as the Recovery Project, this kind of effort to get women uh, back into the history of the discipline and start writing and thinking about them. But there hadn't been a book written about Astor's philosophy. She'd been written about, as I said, as a political theorist and a feminist, but not as a philosopher. So above all, with this book, I wanted, I wanted to make her ideas accessible to a student audience but at the same time to give scholars an appreciation of how sophisticated her uh, philosophy was. So, I mean, the idea there was when you come to early modern texts, it's actually very, very difficult to read them today. <laughs> they, have, they have a number of uh, sort of quaint grammatical expressions and, and, and archaic phrases and, and obsolete words that we don't use today. So it's very difficult to come cold to the text. So... With you know, whereas if when we're reading male philosophers, there have been a number of books written about them to to warm people into their ideas. If you want, if you want to know what Descartes had to say or what Locke had to say, you know, a book a year comes out on those um, male philosophers. People still engage with their ideas as though the men were still alive and still sort of live conversational partners in philosophy today. We, we ask, what would Descartes think? What would Locke think about this? And uh, there are any number of commentaries that will help you answer those questions. So, but the same work has not been done for women in philosophy. And so with Astle, I wanted to warm people into her ideas too and help to make uh, one woman at least a, a live conversational partner again in current day philosophical debates. So one of my hopes for this book, uh, and, and perhaps I guess it's the main purpose of the book, is to, to, to show how Astle can be brought back into philosophical conversations today as a virtue theorist and also as a, as a feminist philosopher. Right, no, it sounds very good. Well, thank you very much for being on the program today. Well, thank you, Beth. It's been my pleasure. And I've been speaking with Dr Jackie Broad about Mary Astell. Hope you've enjoyed the program.